If you have benefited from resources produced by G3 Ministries, would you consider donating to support us? Even a few dollars helps us to continue to publish free curricula, articles, podcasts, video resources, and more. Visit g3min.org give or open the G3 app to give a one-time or monthly donation. Articles from G3 Ministries God of Order, The Holy Spirit's Work Today Written and recorded by Scott Annual. Ultimately, current expectations concerning the Holy Spirit's work today must derive not from experience, but from Scripture. How does the Bible characterize the Holy Spirit's activity? Scripture contains roughly 245 explicit descriptions of the Holy Spirit's actions, 80 in the Old Testament and 165 in the New Testament. Overwhelmingly, the dominant action ascribed to the Holy Spirit in both Testaments is the giving of revelation, 37 times in the Old Testament and 64 times in the New Testament. God the Spirit speaks through prophets and apostles and ultimately inspires the Holy Scriptures themselves. Second in order of frequency in the Old Testament and third in the New Testament is special empowerment given to individual leaders whom God has called to perform special ministry on his behalf, often closely associated with giving revelation. This act of the Holy Spirit occurs 20 times in the Old Testament and 18 times in the New Testament. For example, the Old Testament describes the Holy Spirit being upon Moses and the elders of Israel, Joshua, judges such as Gideon and Samson, and prophets such as Elijah. He also uniquely came upon Israel's kings, Saul and David. This act of the Holy Spirit was never permanent, and was only given to special leaders of God's people, often resulting in unique wisdom, physical strength, and revelation from God. It was even applied to non-believers on occasion, such as Balaam. Old Testament prophecy also foretells a similar empowerment given by the Spirit to the coming Messiah, not surprisingly, then, the earliest examples of this in the New Testament apply specifically to Jesus Christ, first pictured when the Holy Spirit descends upon him at his baptism. The Holy Spirit also uniquely empowers other spiritual leaders in the New Testament, such as John the Baptist and the Apostles. Actions of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament fall off considerably in frequency after the top two categories— they can be described as follows. The Holy Spirit participated in creation, gifted Bezalel and Holiab with skill to build the tabernacle, and dwelt in the midst of Israel. In the New Testament, however, the second most frequent action of the Holy Spirit after Revelation is the sanctification of believers, appearing at least 24 times. This work of the Spirit characterizes Spirit-filling and describes the Spirit's work to progressively produce holy fruit in a believer's life. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit also indwells, regenerates, assures, convicts, and illuminates. Finally, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12-14 through 14 discuss gifts that are given to believers, 
Although absent in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 explains that these gifts are given through the Spirit or by the one Spirit, and chapter 14 calls them manifestations of the Spirit. Since these passages explicitly ascribe the giving of these gifts to the Holy Spirit, other passages that discuss such gifts may also safely be attributed to a work of the Holy Spirit. These gifts are supernatural abilities given for service within the ministry and outreach of the local church, including miraculous gifts, which involve what Roland McCune describes as a suspension, a bypassing, or even an outright contravention of the natural order, like prophecy, miracles, healings, and tongues, and non-miraculous gifts, which Stitzinger describes as abilities that operate within the natural realm of order, even though God's hand of providence is involved, like evangelism, teaching, mercy, administration, etc. This brief survey of the Holy Spirit's activity throughout Scripture helps to lay an important foundation for what Christians should expect his ordinary work to be like. Taking all of the biblical data concerning the Holy Spirit's work throughout history into account, there is no doubt that he sometimes works in extraordinary ways. Yet extraordinary ways of the Spirit are not the ordinary way God works his sovereign will through the course of biblical history. When extraordinary experiences occur, they happen during significant transitional stages in the outworking of God's plan. Sinclair Ferguson helpfully explains, quote, In the scriptures themselves, extraordinary gifts appear to be limited to a few brief periods in biblical history, in which they serve as confirmatory signs of new revelation and its ambassadors, and as a means of establishing and defending the kingdom of God in epochally significant ways. Outbreaks of the miraculous sign gifts in the Old Testament were, generally speaking, limited to those periods of redemptive history in which a new stage of covenantal revelation was reached. But these sign deeds were never normative, nor does the Old Testament suggest they should have continued unabated even throughout the redemptive historical epoch they inaugurated. Consistent with this pattern, the work of Christ and the apostles was confirmed by signs and wonders, unquote. In other words, to focus on the relatively few cases in biblical history of extraordinary works of the Holy Spirit and draw from those a theology that assumes this to be his regular activity fails to take into account the purpose of these works in the overarching plan of God. Furthermore, even the extraordinary works of the Spirit in Scripture, such as giving revelation or empowering for service, hardly resemble the kinds of extraordinary manifestations contemporary worshipers have come to associate with the Holy Spirit, such as emotional euphoria or quote-unquote atmosphere. Even if Christians in the present age should expect extraordinary works of the Spirit to regularly occur— what most contemporary evangelicals have come to expect does not fit the biblical pattern for how the Holy Spirit works. Rather, 
the ordinary work of the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture is better characterized not as extraordinary experience, but rather as an ordering of the plan and people of God. Ferguson notes that the very first action of the Holy Spirit in Scripture is, quote, that of extending God's presence into creation in such a way as to order and complete what has been planned in the mind of God, unquote. Jonathan Edwards developed this theme in his discussion of the Holy Spirit's work in creation. Quote, It was more especially the Holy Spirit's work to bring the world to its beauty and perfection out of the chaos. For the beauty of the world is a communication of God's beauty. The Holy Spirit is the harmony and excellence and beauty of the deity. Therefore, it was his work to communicate beauty and harmony to the world, and so we read that it was he that moved upon the face of the waters, unquote. This, Ferguson continues, is exactly the role the Spirit characteristically fulfills elsewhere in Scripture, unquote. Indeed, this overarching characteristic of ordering describes much, if not all, of what the Holy Spirit does throughout Scripture including giving revelation, creating life, both physical and spiritual, and sanctifying individual believers. To quote Ferguson again, quote, The Spirit orders or reorders and ultimately beautifies God's creation, unquote. Graham Cole summarizes, quote, Creation and its substance are the work of the Spirit as the Spirit implements the divine purpose in nature and history, unquote. Spirit-given revelation also had the ultimate purpose of bringing order to God's plan in the world. The Holy Spirit gives special revelation to disclose the nature and character of God, explains God's requirements, correct sin, and give hope for the future. Likewise, he guides the apostles into truth necessary to establish Christian doctrine and set the church in order. Ultimately, he inspires a prophetic word more fully confirmed, the canonical scriptures given to believers for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The nature of such inspiration is important as well. The Holy Spirit did not inspire the scriptures by bringing authors into a sort of mystical trance as they were carried along. Rather, as helpfully defined by John Frame, inspiration is, quote, a divine act that creates an identity between a divine word and a human word, unquote. Each author conscientiously penned the scriptures using craftsmanship, research, and available current cultural forms and idioms. Spirit-inspired revelation is both for the purpose of order and produced in an orderly fashion. Likewise, the empowering of individual leaders for special service was for the ultimate purpose of bringing to order God's redemptive plan in both Israel and the church. This is true of Moses and the elders of Israel. As Ferguson notes, quote, just as the Spirit produced order and purpose out of the formless and empty primeval created stuff, so when the nation was newborn but remained in danger of social chaos, the Spirit of God worked creatively to produce right government, order, and direction among the refugees from Egypt, unquote. 
Likewise, the spirit gifted Bezalel and Aholiab with skills necessary for building the tabernacle. Ferguson observes, quote, The beauty and symmetry of the work accomplished by these men in the construction of the tabernacle not only gave aesthetic pleasure, but a physical pattern in the heart of the camp, which served to reestablish concrete expressions of the order and glory of the Creator and His intentions for His creation. The Holy Spirit's characteristic work is not only an ordering of God's historical redemptive plan, but it is also a moral ordering. This work begins with his acts of convicting sinners and regenerating hearts, bringing life and order to once dead and disordered lives. This reordering continues with his frequently mentioned work of sanctification. He circumcises the hearts of believers and strengthens their inner being, pouring love into their hearts and leading them to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Of particular importance for this discussion is a careful focus on what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22-23, the results of such an ordering in the life of the Christian. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Indeed, the overwhelming emphasis in the New Testament concerning what will characteristically define the life of a mature, spirit-filled Christian is on sobriety, discipline, dignity, and self-control. Paul commands believers to think with sober judgment, be sober, and be self-controlled, as does Peter. In particular, Paul urges older men to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness, older women to be reverent in behavior, and younger women and men to be self-controlled. None of these evidences of the work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life resemble what a contemporary worshiper would describe as extraordinary experience. Rather, these are the result of the progressive work of the Spirit to sanctify a believer through the disciplines of his word. John Murray summarizes the Holy Spirit's work in sanctification. Quote, It is the efficacious and transforming enlightenment of the Holy Spirit by which the people of God attain unto the perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This concept of ordering also describes the purpose of the Spirit's work of gifting, specifically an ordering of the body of Christ. Paul states that to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He explicitly connects the Spirit's giving of gifts to bringing order within the church, commanding, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. The Holy Spirit's gifting of individual Christians with a diversity of ministry abilities serves to build up the unity of the church, many members of one body, with the goal that this body will attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Furthermore, characterizing the Holy Spirit's work as one of ordering comes even more into clarity when narrowing the focus to his work in corporate worship. 
The key passage for this focus is 1 Corinthians 14, 26-40. Apparently, Christians in the church at Corinth had similar expectations about the Holy Spirit's work in worship being extraordinary experience as contemporary Christians do. As D.A. Carson notes, quote, At least some Corinthians wanted to measure their maturity by the intensity of their spiritual experiences, unquote. Yet Paul corrects their expectation by emphasizing that even if the Holy Spirit works in extraordinary ways in worship, like with tongues and prophecy, God is not a God of confusion, in other words, disorder, but of peace. Paul's argument here appears to be that even within the context of expecting the Holy Spirit to work in miraculous ways, confusion and disorder are evidence that he is not working. As Charles Hodge noted about this passage, quote, When men pretend to be influenced by the Spirit of God in doing what God forbids, whether in disturbing the peace and order of the church by insubordination, violence, or abuse, or in any other way, we may be sure that they are either deluded or impostors, unquote. It is a God of peace who is at work in corporate worship. While the Holy Spirit of God, who with the Father and the Son should be worshipped and glorified, may certainly do whatever he pleases in the world today, he is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. The testimony of Scripture concerning the ordinary ways he works should lead Christians to expect not extraordinary experience when the Holy Spirit works, but disciplined formation. You can read this article at g3min.org.